Well, as we're diving into God's Word this morning, we're picking back up in our study of the Gospel of John, so I'd encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 4. By the way, Randy mentioned the Discover class at the beginning of our time together today. Um, If you are not familiar with what that is, the Discover CBC class is a four-week class we do during the Sunday school hour there. Uh, We do it periodically two or three times a year that allows us to have folks who are interested in finding out more about the church and possibly joining the church officially. Uh, It gives them a place for them to be able to come and learn more about who we are as a church and uh, what we believe and how they can get plugged in and serving. So our next round of Discover CBC starts there the first Sunday in November. If you haven't been through the class, we would love for you to be a part of that just to hear what God's doing. Now, how many of you guys uh, like to work outside? Anybody? All right. Um, how many of you like to work on cars? Anybody? Okay. Um, then you should have been at my house on Thursday night. I was trying to repre- replace the pressure hose on the power steering pump on my wife's Honda Odyssey. Um, I looked it up, and it was about a $400 repair. And so I thought, the part's only $90. It's only about four different bolts. How hard could this possibly be? Four and a half hours later, and a call to my dad to come out and rescue me, we eventually got it, and I think it's not leaking, although I need to check the level this noon to make sure. Um, I ended up having it, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, literally all you have to do, take two bolts off the top, take three bolts out where there's a mount, and then there's one threaded nut you got to take off there that threads into the rack and pinion, should come out really no problem. Um... The repair should not have involved a hacksaw, which it did, a ball-peen hammer, which it did, actually a brass hammer, sorry, we didn't use the brass hammer, although I had the ball-peen handy, Um, and a a set of rescue sockets from Harbor Freight that we could drive onto it with the hammer because I had rounded the whole nut off and had to hack through the line to be able to get to the nut to be able to get the thing out. I was exhausted by the time that was done. You know what was so lovely, and you guys have had this if you've ever been outside working when it's hot? coming in and getting a tall glass of water. Now, this wasn't the case the other night, but have you ever had that experience where you've gotten so hot and you come in and you take that that cold glass of water, you can feel it going all the way down and it's just like this refreshing balm to your soul? Isn't that wonderful? We love a cold, cool drink of water. In fact, actually, if you've noticed in the foyer, we're getting a new water fountain put in that's got one of the bottle fillers, and I'm really excited about that because that means all week long I can get cold filtered water anytime I want it, and that makes me happy without having to waste plastic bottles. You know, it's funny how we are about that because we'll spend $40 on a Hydro Flask or on a Yeti or something because this one will keep our water cold for like two hours longer than the other one did, right? You know, we'll, we'll go out, we'll buy the next one. I think we've moved on from Hydro Flasks now. Apparently, I guess it's like Takeya or something that they've got at Target that I see. Like $40 for a water bottle. Why? Because water is this thing that soothes us and we want this cold, fresh water whenever we can, right? Now, the reality is, no matter how good your Yeti is or know how, no matter how good your Hydro Flask is or how good your filter is, water eventually gets hot, it eventually gets stale, and it loses its refreshment, doesn't it? So what if I told you this morning that there's a water out there that will always soothe your deepest longings? Sounds good, doesn't it? 
That's what Jesus promises to a woman he encounters at a well here in John chapter 4. This morning, we're going to go through a a lot of scripture, and so I'm going to be going through a lot of things kind of quickly. But as we do, we're going to see a tired Jesus sitting down with a troubled woman at a well. And as he talks with her and explains to her what's going on, we're going to see this one critical truth. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our soul's deepest thirst. Okay? If you catch nothing else out of this message this morning, that's what I want you to walk away from here with, that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our soul's deepest thirst. Now, let's go ahead and try to start here in chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 right now. Um, By the way, if you're not familiar with God's Word and some of this seems unfamiliar, we're going to go back and explain who the Samaritans are and what's going on. We're going to look at all these pictures and explain it a little bit further. So here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, Jesus answered him, or her, if you knew the gift of God and who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now, Jesus is doing a whole lot of things in this passage, and there's some stuff that may not make as much sense to you. So as we dive into this, before we even get into the, the meat of the message, I can't, I can't help but hit real quick something that we're not going to bring up a whole lot. But look there again at verse 6. What does it say about Jesus there in verse 6? It says there that Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. Think about that for just a minute. Who did we say that Jesus was back when we looked at John chapter 1? He's God, right? He is the eternal creator, God. He's the one who sustains life. He's the one who made the world. He's the one who actually formed creation. He's the one that Colossians says holds all things together through his power. He's the God who is over everything, the God who's the source of light and life in the world. And what do we find about him? He got tired. What's that tell us? Remember back in chapter 1, we said that there's this beautiful truth where the creator, eternal God of the universe took on human flesh. There are some throughout history who have had a real hard time wrestling with that idea. So they've said, well, maybe Jesus didn't really become human. Maybe he just kind of looked like it. He, He sort of took on the appearance of a person but didn't actually take on human flesh. No, Here's what we see out of John chapter 4, if nothing else. Jesus really did take on flesh. Jesus really did become a person. Now, when he did, he never stopped being God, but he did. Philippians 2 talks about him emptying himself. There's a way in which he laid aside the free exercise of his divine attributes. In other words, he didn't just tap into his divinity. Instead, he operated within his humanity in this fallen nature that we've got. He got tired. So when we talk about coming to Jesus, we're coming to a God who knows what it's like to be exhausted. I was talking with somebody this morning who had 
gone through some trauma in their life. And they were talking about how God allows them then to be able to help other people in, in their trauma because of what they've experienced. And they said, you know, there's something about having gone through that that gives you a different ability to speak into it. The God we come to today knows what it's like to be tired. Looking around the room, some of you are in that spot. I know I sure am. I'm tired. Isn't it incredible to think that God loved us so much that he would take on human flesh to the extent that he himself would be worn out from his journey? By the way, Jesus is not tired now because after he was raised from the dead, his body had the stain of sin removed from it. He overcame death itself. And so now he has the resurrected, glorified body that you and I will have once he returns and takes us back with him and we're reunited with our bodies and all this kind of stuff that the Bible talks about that will happen at the end. Jesus already has that. So Jesus isn't tired anymore. And Jesus has also taken back the right to be able to use his divine attributes. So he sits in heaven now, but he knows what it's like to be walking a long way on a hot day and sit down and need something cool to drink. Pretty incredible, isn't it? This is the one who's offering living water to this woman in Samaria. Now, let's explain some of the cultural stuff that's going on there. The individual that Jesus was speaking to had two strikes against her right off the bat in the eyes of most Jewish men, okay? Keep in mind how dramatically different and how incredibly different the culture was than what we experience today. In those days, it was considered improper for a man to have a conversation with a woman in public, even his wife. It was demeaning for a man to even have a conversation other than just telling her what to do in public. And now Jesus is here alone with some woman talking to her. Now, in case you're wondering, you think I'm reading stuff into the context there, uh, jump down to verse 27. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? So they were like, what is he doing? He's talking to a woman. Okay, so strike number one, he's talking to a woman. Strike number two, it's not just any woman, it's a Samaritan woman. Now, Samaritans were the people who lived, if if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that God had his special group of people that was Abraham's family called the Jews or the Israelites or the Hebrews. And God put them in a specific land there uh, that's often referred to by historians as Palestine, the land of Israel there that's from kind of the Dead Sea. uh, Well, from, yeah, that whole stretch right up through there, right? God gave them this land. If you remember at one point, the kingdom divided into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was known as Samaria because that was the capital. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. Well, over time, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom both rebelled against God. They both turned their back on what God had told them to do. And so over a series of events, God allowed the Assyrians and then eventually the Babylonians to come in and take people out of the land to take over, destroy the temple in Jerusalem and all these kinds of things. When the Assyrians took everybody out of the land, they also left some who were there. Now, the northern kingdom had already messed up because they had already established their own sacrificial system and their own altars, and they had disregarded everything that God had said. So they were already religiously corrupt. 
But then after the captivities, the, the emperors moved people from other nations into those areas and everybody intermarried with each other. And that was something that God had told the Jews that they were not supposed to do. They weren't supposed to marry people from these other nations. So they've set up their own religious system. They've corrupted their cultural bloodline that God had told them to keep pure. So in the eyes of the Jews that are there in Jerusalem and the ones who were actually right with God, they fell. These people are half-breed. They're religious nut jobs. They are totally out of, of anything we should ever talk about. In fact, they said that a Samaritan woman is born unclean from the moment of her birth. And as they looked at this, here's what this, this tells us, okay? Samaria is the middle right smack dab in the nation of Israel. Jerusalem and all that's kind of down below it. And then you've got Galilee up here in the Sea of Galilee. Well, what would happen was devout Jewish folks, they wouldn't go through Samaria. They would actually go across the Jordan River, add a day or two to their journey to be able to go between Jerusalem and Galilee. They'd go around the whole thing and add extra time. Yet, what do we find Jesus doing? He walks right through the middle of it. And he sits down with a Samaritan woman. Now, when we hear her lifestyle, it gets even worse. She is not a, a good woman. In fact, some have said that, they, that she probably thought Jesus was trying to take her home with him when he first started talking because that's the only reason that a man would talk to a woman like that. Yet Jesus' plan is something completely different. Jesus' design and desire is not to, to try to ridicule this woman or take advantage of her. Instead, he is offering her living water. Now, it's funny because there's a play on words here, kind of like there was last week with the idea of being born again, right? Remember Nicodemus, when he heard about being born again, he thought, how's that going to work? Because he was thinking in the physical. In the same kind of way, that term living water can refer to fresh water, like from a spring as opposed to water from a well. Growing up, my mom and dad had a spring. And I don't know if you have ever drunk water from a good spring right when it comes out the side of the hill, but there is nothing like the taste of that water. Now, mom and dad live on a well, and it doesn't taste as good. It's, it's from that same spring, but I'm sorry. It just, there's something about it that just doesn't taste as good. In these days, sometimes the wells were more stagnant. They didn't get as much flow. So it wasn't living water. It wasn't fresh water. But Jesus is making a play on words here. He's not just talking about, I'm going to give you water from a spring instead of from a stagnant well. No, what I'm giving you, what I'm offering you is living water, something that's going to transform and change you. This is a picture that God used throughout the Old Testament. We'll see in a minute. But John uses this multiple times. You see Jesus referring to the living water. Sometimes he's referring to himself as the living water. Other times he says, like he does here, that he's going to give you living water. One of the clearest parallels that I think helps us explain what's going on here is John chapter 7. In John 7, verse 37, Jesus said this, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not been glorified. So here's what he's saying. For those who will trust in him, those who will come to him, Jesus will give you living water. That living water is like we talked about last week. You remember how we said that we were born again through the work of the Holy Spirit? That the Spirit is the one who gives us life, the one who makes us new as he comes inside of us and, and takes up residence in us? 
The living water that Jesus is promising here is the life that comes through the Spirit of God taking up residence in us. Now, let's make three different observations about what it looks like when we have this living water in us. What does the living water lead to when we receive this? We see that Jesus is describing this new life in terms of uh, of living water, and we'll see that more as we look through. The first way we want to look at this, though, is to recognize that living water leads to lasting satisfaction. Living water leads to lasting satisfaction. Now, pick back up with me in verse 11. Remember how Nicodemus reacted last week, how he said, you know, Jesus said, be born again, and he's like, can I go back to my mother's womb? Because that'd be awkward. And this time, you're going to see the Samaritan woman said the same kind of thing. So Jesus, verse 10 says, if you knew the gift of God and who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? (laughs) Actually, yes, I'm the one who created him, but that's a different story. (laughs) He gave us this well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. See, Jesus directs her away from the physical. It's not about, she's she's sitting there saying, well, you don't even have a bucket, man. Back in those days, they, they would carry a leather collapsible bucket they could use to draw water when they were at somewhere like this. And she said, How are you going to give me anything? You don't even have a bucket. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm doing something more. Just like he did with Nicodemus, he takes him to that next level and says, this is not talking about physical water. This is talking about spiritual. He said, the living water that I'm going to give you, this water will flow out from you. This water leads to eternal life. Crazy picture, isn't it? Now, it's interesting because this isn't the first time that God's used this kind of picture with his people. Back in Jeremiah, he was talking about the fact that even the southern kingdom Judah was turning away from him. It says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, For my people have committed a double evil. Number one, they have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And number two, they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. All right, leave that up for a second, Alex. So there's two things that they've done. One, they've abandoned me. They've turned from following God, who he describes himself as the fountain of water. And number two, they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can't hold water. Now, a cistern was a pit in the ground that had a container or was lined with stones or brick or something that would hold water so that you could collect rainwater during the rainy season that you would use later during the dry season. So he said, you've left the fountain of living water, and you've turned and dug your own cisterns. Now, how many of you guys have something in your backyard that collects stagnant water? The mosquito breeders, right? That old tire under the shed, you know, something. If that water sits, it gets stagnant and gross, doesn't it? So which would you rather have? The water from the old tire in the back of your house or the water flowing fresh out of the side of the mountain as a mountain stream? right? Which one are you going to take? The fresh flowing water. But yet what God says is, my people, the ones that I've called, they've turned away from, from the living water that's me, from following me, from following me, from looking to me. And instead, they've tried to dig their own cisterns and they're drinking their own nasty water. And those cisterns don't even hold water. Isn't that what we find? 
See, instead of turning to God, what you and I will do is we try to find our own water. We try to find our own satisfaction. We try to soothe our souls somewhere. We know at least one way that this Samaritan woman had. She tried to soothe that, relation, or that soul ache with relationships. We don't know what led her to this point. We don't know her backstory. We don't know what trauma she had endured as a child. We don't know what she had been through or what kept driving her to relationships. But read what Jesus says to her. So he told her that she would have this water, uh, this living water that would be a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. She's like, hey, look, man, I got to come out here every day when it's hot and I got to get water. So if you could fix this, I'm great with that. That sounds fantastic. I don't want to have to keep doing this. When we go to Zimbabwe, the, the village we work in has, they call them boreholes. They're wells with a big pump and you've got to walk to whichever one is in kind of your part of the community, and you've got to carry the water, and they carry the big jugs of water on their hand. It's a big deal to be able to get water. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. It's hard. So she's saying, hey, if you can fix that for me, that would be fantastic. I would love to not have to be here every day. But verse 16, Jesus drives in a little deeper. Go call your husband, he told her. Come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You've correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Oh, man, where'd that come from? Can you imagine being this woman right now, right? So you're already confused because this guy is talking to you. He's a Jew. You're a Samaritan. You're a woman. You were just coming for a drink of water, and now this guy's giving you a hard time, and, and he's giving you this whole back and forth about living water, and you're like, give me that, and, and he's like, no, it's not like that, and all this, and just what? And then he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, you're right. You don't have a husband, do you? You had five, and the guy you're living with right now, he's not your husband, is he? Whoa, that was more than she bargained for. She's going to respond to that in a second, but here's what we find from that. For some reason, she thought this relationship with this guy is going to fix it. This is going to solve it. But every single time, it left her empty. Guys, turning to anything but Christ for our satisfaction will always leave you empty. Now, we all do this. It may not be that we run from relationship to relationship to relationship looking to soothe that ache. Maybe for you it is, that you go from relationship to relationship. Maybe it's that you think that one more purchase will satisfy you. If I just had this, if I just bought this, if I just, maybe that one more promotion. Maybe if I got a few more hours of sleep or, I got to see the kids more often. That, that would do it. Maybe if my body looked a certain way, I'd finally feel good enough about myself. Or maybe just one more drink or one more snack will help me feel better. If this health issue was gone, or if I could just make it to graduation, or if I could just make it to retirement, or if I could just make it to marriage, or if I could just get to, if I could just get to, if I could just get to, and you know what happens? Every single one of those things lets you down. I remember the first time I really realized this. Well, most of us, it was because you saved up the 16 box tops and you you got the decoder ring that you waited like six to nine weeks to come and you realized it didn't even work. I remember high school graduation. 
I graduated from CHS. We did the graduation outside on the football field. I remember them, you know, cheering, clapping, everybody tossing hats. I remember finding my hat. Just kind of, oh, that's it. High school's done. It was underwhelming, to say the least. When I graduated from college, I actually graduated during the summer term, and I didn't even matriculate. So I, I never walked across the stage and got my diploma from college. I remember finishing seminary, and they had a beautiful ceremony at our seminary where the graduates would kneel, and all the professors came by and would lay hands and pray over you, and it was a beautiful moment, and then it was over. I remember every shiny thing I've ever bought that I thought would solve it, and it never has. You the same way? Nothing in your life will ever bring satisfaction period, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, turn to me. He's the same God who said that he's a fountain of living water. Stop digging a well in the the desert or a cistern that's not even going to hold water. If it did, the water would be stagnant and gross, but it doesn't even do that right. He's promising living water. Without resting in the satisfaction that Christ gives, without drinking deeply from the living water that he offers, all of those goals that you have, those goals become gods and they always disappoint. See, that's the problem. I'm not saying that you shouldn't want to push to graduation or that you shouldn't try to have a healthy marriage or that you shouldn't fight for these things or or try to gain a promotion at work. That in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not wrong. But if that's what you're looking to make that you satisfied, that's gonna be a god for you and it's gonna let you down. When we make goals into gods, they always disappoint. In fact, the writer of Proverbs hit the nail on the head when he said this, there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. We think if if I just pour my life into my job or if I pour my life into my kids and my grandkids, if I I pour my my money into this hobby or if I I do this, it's finally going to solve that ache. All of that seems right, but every single one of those things just leads us back to death. It always disappoints. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, come to me. Read verses 13 and 14 again. Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. When we drink the living water, when we come to Christ and he fills us with his spirit and gives us life, we find what our hearts are ultimately longing for. Augustine of Hippo, or somebody know him as St. Augustine, said this in his book, The Confessions. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and so our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Where are you looking for rest today? There's nothing on earth that can satisfy your heart's deepest desire because those deepest desires are to be known and rightly related to to the God who made you. That's what your heart is longing for. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hungering and thirsting for him. 
and we drink deeply from that living water. Then we can enjoy the life that God's given us as he puts the spirit of God in us. When we thirst for the living God by surrendering to Christ, we're drinking deeply of that living water and resting in the life that God has wrought in us by the power of the spirit of God. Then we can pursue those other things and they flow out of what God's done. Then when I'm looking at graduation, you guys know I'm doing my doctorate right now. When I'm looking towards being done with the gigantic paper that I'm going to have to start writing in about 18 months, when I'm looking forward to that, I look forward to it because then I can see how God's going to use this experience for his name and his glory to help me be a better leader. When I, when I look towards my relationship with my kids or my relationship one day, Lord willing, to my grandkids, when I look towards that, it's not so that they'll finally make my life mean something. It's so that as I pour into them, I can hopefully help them see who Jesus is and learn to love him and walk in him and glorify the God who saved me when I was a nine-year-old boy. That's the satisfaction. So then I can enjoy Christ and I can drink freely from him. And then I can enjoy whatever comes with the rest of it. I can enjoy that new purchase. I can enjoy that new promotion. I can enjoy that new thing because it's a gift from the God who's already satisfied my soul. How satisfied are you? I told you we've been in villages where there's only a few wells and you see how much time gets devoted every day to getting water. We're doing the same thing spiritually. We've allowed our phones to hijack the dopamine cycles in our brains so that we turn to the well of social media time and time again, hoping that one more like, one more follow, some kind of funny meme, that, that's going to be the funny one that finally satisfies that ache in my heart. And it's just not going to do it. We turn to the news, hoping that the next broadcast will show how right we are and how wrong the other person is, or that maybe this time we'll hear the, the news that, that we've been hoping to hear, that things are turning around, whatever that looks like for us. Or we feed on the outrage, hoping that that indignation will warm our hearts enough. We turn to our kids or our grandkids, hoping that their success will finally validate us, or to our grades or our paycheck or to any number of things. Jesus says, stop it. Stop turning to those things for what only he can do. Now, if you've never followed Christ, that's the initial call of becoming a Christian. Turning from trying to find your satisfaction in anything other than the God who loved you so much that he would die in your place and be raised from the dead. So you've got to turn from seeking satisfaction here and turn to what Christ has done. But if you're here today and you're a believer, if you're watching us online and you know you're a follower of Christ, this isn't just for lost folks. I, I have this feeling, because I know it in my own life at times, I have this fountain of living water in me. The Spirit of God literally lives inside of me. And yet so often I find myself turning away from the fountain of living water and trying to to dig my own cistern, right? Trying to dig my own well. Trying to find my own water when I have the fountain of living water right there. If I'm thirsty today, if I'm not satisfied, it's not because something's wrong with the water. It's wrong with where I'm looking. So this week, as you've been dealing with the situations you've faced, are you turning to Christ and digging, excuse me, drinking deeply? What do you do when you first feel your heart hurting? Where do you go? 
When you first feel inadequate, what's your reaction? When things are starting to come in on you, when you get bored, what's the first thing you turn to? How about when you have a success? That's actually more dangerous, I think. When things are going well, do you recognize and acknowledge that that's a blessing where God worked and God moved and God did something good? Or do you say, good, my hard work has finally paid off? How do you handle the successes? How do you handle the blessings? How do you handle the boredom? Stop turning to things that will never satisfy. Instead, turn to Christ for the water you need. Now, let's look at a couple other things that this living water does. Second of all, not only does living water lead to lasting satisfaction, but living water also leads to true worship. Jesus has put his finger right on the issue of the worship of this woman's heart. Now, we often think of idolatry as bowing down or offering food or burning incense to some little statue. And we think as Americans, we don't do that. You know, we don't have little altars in our home or outside of our businesses like you might find in Thailand or somewhere like that. So we don't really do idolatry. Well, we absolutely do. This woman's idolatry was actually based off the fact that she was looking for relationships to satisfy. She had made those relationships with other, with these men, her God. That's what she was hoping would solve her deepest needs. That's what she her attention to. That's what she gave her time to. That's what she gave everything she had to, was hoping that that would solve it. The reality is we all do that. Now, she got real uncomfortable because Jesus put his finger right on a very sore spot of her heart. So she tries to change the subject, which is what most people do. So verse 19, Jesus had told her about, I know what's going on with you and your husband's. Verse 19, sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Here's what she's trying to do. Remember how I said that the northern kingdom had set up their own worship system and stuff, and God had said they were supposed to worship in Jerusalem? She's trying to to pull Jesus into a debate because she doesn't want to talk about her life. She, She wants to get it off of her and kind of get it out. So, oh yeah, well, you guys say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but we say we're supposed to worship here. Jesus is too good for that. Verse 21, he doesn't take the bait. He says, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So he points her to something even greater than this debate that she's trying to get in. With Jesus' arrival and then later with him giving the Holy Spirit to his followers, Jesus was taking the emphasis off of the sacrifices and the temple system and all of those things and putting it on to the fact that we as believers are now the temple of God because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Remember he talked about that. Some He kind of hinted at that back in John Uh, two, when we were talking about how he was going to replace the temple. You remember us talking about, he was talking about his own body being torn down. And and so as he talked about that, what Jesus was doing was saying, all of those pictures and all of that's going to be fulfilled so that it's coming a time even now when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. What's that mean? Well, when we talk about worship, we talk about worship usually in terms of singing on Sunday mornings, and that absolutely is one of the key elements of what we do in worship. God's commanded us multiple times throughout his word to sing to him, to sing together corporately, so that's one of the ways in which we express our worship. But worship is more than just singing a song. 
It's even if you go through all of the words and the words are Christ-exalting and these guys are playing to the glory of God, if you're out there and you're just going through the motions and singing the words, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. True worship is worship in spirit and in truth. So as the, the living spirit of God comes inside of us, here's what we find. William Barclay, a biblical commentator, said this about it. Genuine worship does not consist in coming to a certain place, nor in going through a certain ritual or liturgy, nor even in bringing certain gifts. True worship is when the Spirit, the immortal and invisible part of man, speaks to and meets with God, himself immortal and invisible. So when the Spirit of God comes in and makes us alive, when we're born again like we talked about last week in John 3, or when we receive this living water that Jesus offers, that means that worship becomes me at the very core of who I am in my spirit, worshiping and honoring God who is spirit. Now, that's all mediated through his spirit. By the way, that's why um, in the Greek, they don't have capital letters like we do. The way that they capitalize things is different. So that's why in some translations, you'll see that this is a lowercase s for spirit. Other translations, it's an uppercase s. Because the question is, is it talking about that worship is a spiritual act in us? Or is it talking about the, uh, the fact that, that true worship is mediated by the Spirit of God as he speak, allows us to commune with God through what he does? So if it's a little s, that means it's us. If it's a big s, that means it's the Spirit of God. Which is it? Both. I mean, really, the answer is yes. Because both are true. Worship must take place in our spirit that has been made alive and enabled by the Spirit of God who lives inside of us. So what we see is when we drink from this living water that Jesus offers us, then all of a sudden we are able to worship in spirit and also in truth. We're worshiping the God who actually is. See, here's the thing. Whenever we worship anything besides the one true God, we're worshiping a lie because that thing's not actually a God. That thing can never satisfy. It has no power. It has no authority. It has no ability. It's not the one true God. So you're worshiping a lie. So true worshipers are worshiping spiritually, communing with the one true God, giving him the praise and the honor and the glory that's due his name, giving him the affection, giving him the devotion, and worshiping him in spirit and in truth. It's real. It's genuine. That's what we see God doing in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 17. He talks about what the Spirit does in us. He says this, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit of God in you is supposed to help you communicate. You should be crying out and realizing, this God that I'm singing about is my Father. He's drawn me into a relationship with Him. Like we saw in John 1, that whoever believes in Him, He gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. That that through the Spirit of God, He's testifying those things to us. So our worship then becomes genuine because when we come in and we're singing together, as these guys are playing and as they're singing and leading us, what's happening is together, we're pouring out this river of living water, giving praise and honor and glory and worship to the one true God through the Spirit that lives inside of us. It's the overflow of that lasting satisfaction because we say, God, you're greater than any relationship. You're greater than any promotion. You're greater than anything I could ever devote myself to. 
So living water leads to lasting satisfaction and then true worship. And then one last thing I want to look at briefly. Living worship also leads, or excuse me, living water leads also to lasting influence, to life-changing influence. See, when Jesus speaks to this woman, it becomes apparent that at some point she put her belief and her faith and trust in Jesus. Verse 25, it says, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So it seems at this moment that this woman began to put her faith and trust in Jesus as her own Savior and Lord. A lot of us want to make our lives count. I hope you do. I mean, I really hope that you're not satisfied just to live and die and leave the world no difference for you being alive in it. If you're still here, um, as we saw a quote from Adrian Rogers last night that said, if you woke up this morning and you're still here, then God has a plan for your life and a purpose for it. The reality is, if you woke up, then you are still here, okay? If you weren't here, you wouldn't have woke up this morning, right? If you woke up and you're still here, then God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Do you want to know how to make it count for all of eternity? See, how many of you guys in here um, think it would be a worthwhile goal if one of our college students were able to cure cancer? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be fantastic if one of our students who came through this church went on to be the man or the woman who finally cracked the code and was able to cure cancer once and for all. Wouldn't that be awesome? But you know what would happen? People would die of something else. Even if you could eradicate cancer, you still got pneumonia, still got congestive heart failure. You still got any number of other ways in which people die. So, you, Sean, you're saying we should just let cancer go and, and not try to fight against it? No, absolutely. Like I said earlier, goals are good. Man, would to God that we would go out and we would do anything possible within our power, within our realm, to be able to end human suffering to whatever extent we can. We should fight against it. We should seek to end cancer. We should seek ways to alleviate poverty. We as believers should be ones who are pushing this way because our God is the God who created it all. We should be at the forefront of all of these fields and doing everything we can to see people have lives that are better than they have right now. But as we do that, it's with the understanding that people are still going to die. See, all of us, die of something. All of us do. So here's what's incredible. This woman had an eternal impact, one that lasted not just during somebody's life, like curing their cancer, but one that lasted for all eternity. How do we know? We'll jump down to verse 28. The woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. This woman immediately went back and said, Hey guys, you got to see this. I think this guy might be the Messiah. Jump down to verse 39. Now many Samaritans, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And then they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. 
This woman with a tarnished reputation, one of those people, was one of the first people to go back to those who did not know who Jesus was and say, hey, you've got to come meet this guy. He told me everything that I've ever done. And when they got around Jesus, they put their saving faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Do you know where that Samaritan woman is right now? She's in heaven with God. She's right now worshiping Jesus at his feet in heaven right now. And you know who's with her? All those people from the village that she said, guys, y'all got to come see this. What could be more influential than changing the eternal destiny of people? Now, listen, guys, you and I don't change hearts. We can't. If I can talk you into getting saved, somebody else can talk you out of it. Only God can make a person right with him. Only God can bring someone to the point of saving faith and believing in him. I, I can't do that. But what I can do is say, hey, come see this. And you've got to see this God that that I met, that I know. He knew everything about me, and he still talked to me, and he he loved me, and and he cared for me. Guys, there's no greater way to influence the world because you're changing the world for all eternity. You're you're taking somebody, and and as God works in them, they're going from death to life, coming into his kingdom where they'll live forever. Forever. That's the living water overflowing out of you. There was a book we, we went through several years ago called Outflow that used this idea that for those of us who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we should be so filled up with him that it just spills out everywhere. That it just flows out into our conversations and the way we treat our servers, the way we treat retail workers. Guys, it's awful right now to work anywhere, right? Any kind of retail, any kind of food service, anything like that, they're all short-staffed and it's not their fault that it's stuck on a boat coming from China out outside of Los Angeles in the harbor. That's not their fault at all. So don't act like it is. Instead, act like you have a God who rivers of living water in you who cares more about that person than getting your new phone. You know why I say that? Because I can be that guy if I'm not careful. I was raised in a, a family where we owned a business that was small enough that we could not afford to lose a single customer, okay? Walmart, they can have people walk and it doesn't matter because where are you gonna go? You're gonna come back to Walmart, right? We were a small mom and pop shop and if we lost a customer, it hurt whether or not we were going on vacation this year, right? Like that, that's where we were. So for me, customer service is a very high priority. If I walk into your store and you say, I don't have that, I'm going to be mad at you on the inside of my heart because you don't have it, the store has it, so we don't have that, all right? That's just, that's ingrained in me and I can get so mad at that kind of stuff if I'm not careful. But then I've got to realize that it doesn't matter whether I have it or we have it. This person needs to know who Jesus is and they can find out through the way that I live. So, and you know why? Because if I'm mad that my phone's not here yet, I don't need that phone. Sure, I'd love to have it. It'd be fun to have. But I've got lasting satisfaction that no phone's gonna give me or no good meal is gonna give me. I'm worshiping the one true God in spirit and in truth because he's put living water inside me. I've been satisfied. All this other stuff, it's icing on the cake. So then I have the privilege, instead of seeking for my job to give me what God can, 
instead of seeking for my marriage to give me or my kids to give me or whatever to give me what only God can, then I have the privilege of having that satisfaction that then I can influence others for the kingdom of God because I don't need to get anything from them. And that living water can just flow out of me, flow through me into the lives of others. Now, I know I have a lot today. But my challenge for you is this. Have you ever truly drank from this living water? I know it's abstract. I know it's kind of a weird picture. But Jesus used pictures to help us to understand heavenly realities that are really kind of too big for us to figure out. Has there ever been that time in your life where you've turned and said, you know what? I need this and drank deeply from Christ. Now, I know a lot of you and some who are watching online, and I imagine you've made that decision. So my question is, are you still drinking deeply from Christ? Are you still leaning in and drinking deeply from, from the water that he gives you? Or have you started trying to dig your own cistern again? Just stop it. Stop it. Find your satisfaction in him. Let it overflow in worship, in spirit, and in truth, and into the lives of those around you, giving, giving you the ability to be a part of what God's doing and influencing lives for all of eternity.